Thanks for tuning in to The Big Idea. I'm Michael Anderson, and we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the question, what does good local government look like? We have Sandy Smith in the studio. Very excited for today's show, and we hope to make the next 30 minutes a very good investment of your time. Today's show is brought to you by GEICO Local Office, car and homeowner's insurance for the 805. You could save up to 15%. Call Greg Mock of GEICO Local Office, 805-487-7847. And our guest today is Sandy Smith. He's in the master's program at CLU as a professor uh, out there. He's also a land use consultant, the former mayor in the city of Ventura. And today we're going to be talking about what does good local government look like? How do you get a report card? How do you know if something is good or not good? And how do you kind of assess that? I think it's important to understand Well, I'm excited to have Sandy Smith in the studio today. And we're going to be talking about that. Sandy, welcome to the show. Um, Nice to be here. Thanks. I really want to start with a little bit of your background. You're Mm -hmm. former mayor. Mm -hmm. You're now a land use consultant with CESPI Consulting. And you're teaching in the master's program at Cal Lutheran University, which is a phenomenal place. Tell me about teaching public policy at Cal Lutheran. What's that like? It's real enjoyable. I mean, it's something that I that I've been doing now for 14 years. It's something that I've I've liked teaching. I mean, I used to be a teacher in a past life. I used to teach elementary school. I taught at Buena High School for a few years, and now I'm at the university level. But I'm teaching the things that I do for a living. You know, I'm teaching urban planning. I'm teaching project management, and I teach civic engagement. And when you do land use in Ventura County, that means engaging the public. Public are usually um, involved in those decisions, either for or against. You know, teaching that class kind of helps me in the workplace as well. It's interesting now as I start to pay a little bit more attention than I feel like I ever did before with local government where I live, and it feels like other people are paying more attention where they are as well with the, I guess, the promotion of tools like the internet and social media, are you finding more people are a little more engaged or are they a little more confused? You notice there, does that come up? We're jumping right into it. No, I know. Well, they're probably engaged and confused at the same time. I think the level of engagement, I wouldn't say that it's gone up. I think that social media has certainly made it more accessible to certain people. I think that people tend to get involved in their community and specific issues that they may be concerned about more on the negative side, things that they don't like as opposed and I think that's the media in general. There's things to come out against or things we're concerned about, things to get involved in or to organize about in support of. And I think because it's local governance, you know, the things that happen at the local level within the governmental framework impact our lives directly. Most of our land use decisions, what we build, how we build, how fast we grow, streets, police, fire, all of those sorts of governmental decisions are made at the local level. So the things that impact our quality of life, the things that probably interest more in our neighborhoods are, are decisions that are made at the local level. So I think that's where you see a lot of engagement. We're talking with Sandy Smith. He is professor at CLU in the public policy master's program. We see so much about national government all the time. It's mm-hmm. always in our face. It's always in the news. And, and in some ways it's, uh, you know, it's difficult, but I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is local government Mm -hmm. right here, locally where we live. 
what does good government look like? How can we know if we're in a situation where things are going good or things are kind of maybe could be doing much better? How do we assess that? Well, it's a difficult thing to assess. I wish there was an easy answer to that. And if there was, then I would be around speaking to other uh, cities about, will you please adopt this measure uh, so that we can have a greater predictability about, you know, how things are happening and are they happening the way we want them to? I think that the only way that to do that is to is to stay engaged, is to follow what's happening locally. There aren't a lot of people that do that. I think that there are people that are, have particular issues that they're concerned about, and maybe they'll focus on that. You know, the Thomas fire that we experienced and the Woolsey fire and the fires in, in Thousand Oaks have brought sort of that awareness so that to the fore. So we're concerned about, you know, our open spaces and our brush and building in those environments. And those kinds of things now may be of more of interest than they were. So as something comes along, I think that, you know, we pay attention to it. Somebody may be monitoring how, let's say, uh, city government in TO or city government in Ventura now is responding to that. In terms of keeping up with it or looking and saying, well, how is this particular community or this particular city doing? I think the only way to do that is to weigh it over time. You're not going to know if it's good until 10 years later and you say, we did some good stuff back then, right? I mean, that's kind of how it goes a little bit. Well, you know, I think that one thing, you know, there's certainly the economic model is how effective are you at getting the resources that you need locally to do the things that need to be done. Some cities are more solvent economically, and generally that can be the direct relationship to how effective they are at being adept at keeping businesses in the community or attracting businesses into the community. Some of that gets into permitting. Permitting processes that can be onerous in one community may not be so in the other. At the end of the day, though, I think that I think the public tends to grade cities on, are the streets getting paved? Um, do we feel safe? You know, those sorts of barometers, I think, typically are the public use to see if, if my community is being effectively managed or not. And I think those are good barometers to use. I think that, that city government should be held accountable for those elements that we kind of consider overall as quality of life issues. We're talking with Sandy Smith. We're talking about local government and just trying to get a better idea of what good local government looks like. You know, I think about it on the county level. Every county, you know, has its different cities. And then inside the city, there are elected people. How is it that sometimes there's one city that seems to get all of the good companies opening businesses there, and then there's another city where nobody's opening or nobody's building, or it's more difficult there than it is here, or developers might say there's a history of this or that. How do these things and cultures form, and how do they change over time? They can certainly change over time based on on the awareness within the business community of whether it's a good place to make an investment or not. I mean, it doesn't take, I mean, I'm, I'm a land use consultant, so I think I have a pretty good grasp of this. There are communities that are known in the business world where investments are made that this can be a time-consuming and costly process to get into. In terms of the city of Ventura, where our land use is restricted by SOAR as it is in other communities, but we have a different land use regulation in the city of Ventura than anywhere else in the county. Other cities have curbs, so you cannot build outside a line around the city without a public vote. In the city of Ventura, we have all of our land that is zoned ag 
in the community is in restricted. So all we have all these pockets in the community that can't be developed. So we were very restricted in terms of the land that we have to bring in an industry or a business or a large business. Other communities like Oxnard with Sakioka Farms has 400 acres that's zoned appropriately for industrial use or offices, et cetera. So a lot of it can just have to do with the availability of land. A lot of it, uh, as I mentioned, can do with um, ease of permitting and how clear the process is for somebody that wants to come in and make an investment. I recently had a meeting with a client in a city that I'm considering to be the one that's operated well. In that meeting was the city manager, the community development director, the planning director, everybody that needed to be in the room. My client talked about what they wanted to do. There was consensus that this was something that the city wanted. And from that day on, it was green, got the green light and went through quickly. Other cities may not have that model where you're able to bring everybody into the room, get consensus, have the amount of leadership you need at the city manager level so that everybody knows we're all on the same team here and we want this to happen. That's certainly part of the equation as well. You have to have political will. You have to have the commitment to want to, to, the want to, to get it done from the early stages. That helps kind of develop that, uh, that culture of being able to say yes to stuff. And as a, you know, former mayor and a council member, I mean, your role is to help create that environment. But you're limited in terms of the fact that you really, as a city manager, you only hire two people, and that's the city manager and the city attorney. In my experience in communities that have difficulties with that clarity, is um, not allowing your the staff or the staff of the council to do their job. Provide insights into what the council wants. Hopefully that's the voice of the people. So adequately relay what the people in the community want and then step out of the way and allow professional staff to go do their job. In cities that are challenged, it, from my experience, there tends to be micromanagement at the council level. And when that happens, it's one or two people's vision for the community that may or may not be that of the public overall. And that always is hard to assess. But if that changes politically, every two, four years, you have new people that are sitting there and it's their, what they think at the moment. That's a very difficult environment to operate under as a staff to have clarity. That vision is changing from day to day. And it changes on what a preference might be for just the, a type of window or a color of a building. Those sort of minutia that takes place sometimes at the local level can really keep things from happening. Yeah, it seems like it's difficult. There's a lot of problems that can arise when you have, well, I mean, there's seven council members. There's one city manager. You have the county level above that. And you have other commissions below that. So there's a lot of input. But even at that, there's one of seven that, you know, is trying to help influence what the decisions might be that the city manager is going to implement. There are a lot of issues that can arise. And we're talking with Sandy Smith, talking about what does good local government look like? What does it look like? And there are a lot of issues that can arise when we're trying to have good local government. What are the common issues that we see popping up? You mentioned a couple of them. Well, you know, I mean, somebody who teaches civic engagement and somebody back in 97 ran, was elected basically saying that we needed to do a community vision. I'm a strong supporter of really a lot of outreach to the community. I teach it in my classes. I think that elected officials are elected to provide public value. I think that the more that you're capable of assessing what it is that your community prioritizes and the more effectively that you are in relaying those that thinking within the political context and to your city manager, who is really the one who operates the 
staff and it has to implement all those ideas, the better you are. My experience in places that don't do good civic engagement or public outreach and make decisions in sort of a bubble where you have six or seven, or in a case of seven people, four people that vote one way without adequately getting the voice of the public into the, into the mix, you can often see them sort of off the rails and, and not really adequately representing, I think, what is in the public interest. So I think that where communities do good public outreach, particularly um, not only at the political level, but at the staff level, when projects or programs are going to be implemented, how effective are they at engaging the public and getting their input into it? And as I teach it in my class, it's just good government in, in common sense, because if you don't, what happens? What happens is you roll this out in a public hearing uh, without having done so, and you're going to have people come out and say, this isn't, we weren't involved in this. This isn't what we want. And so if you really want to get public support for something, the idea is to engage them early, um, get consensus and their, their opinions into the development of the policy or the program itself. And you're going to find that those programs um, adequately represent the ideas of the public, but you're also going to find they get the support of the public as well. Let me ask you about that because you mentioned outreach and there's a process to it and that's important. And I'll tell you, I've went to a few events over the last year that are local outreach type events and everyone there is like, I think average age is like 87. Like I'm, and, and I'm, I'm joking, but at the same time, the people that are there aren't necessarily representative of the people that are actually in the community. How can you have meaningful and relevant outreach or process to try and get what's wanted? Because they want what they want. But that may be different than what other neighbors want, but they, they can't show up to the event when it's hosted. Yeah. There's given a process, and there is a process. you got to respect that. How do you balance that out? You really have to put a lot of time and energy, and that is money. People that in governments where, or in governance where you see don't see strong investment in, in public outreach, it's because it's, well, we're going to spend $100,000 on this. That's a waste of money. I would argue that that $100,000 is a savings because you're going to lose that much money in all of the processes that will go into altering what you have, the ideas you have, or money spent. You know, I can name a couple of um, processes that went through where you know staff spent probably a quarter million dollars on something that once it hit a public hearing went south and went away after all that investment and studies that went into it. It's a good investment, number one, in making sure the right thing happens. It has to happen correctly. You can't just put a sign out saying meeting at six. What's going to happen is exactly what you've experienced. You're only going to find certain people. And in communities that I am involved in, I see whatever city it is, I see the same faces all the time. At council hearings, at meetings, you see a core of 20, 30 people maybe. They're at all of these meetings. And if that's the only outreach that you do, you're getting a very skewed look at what is the community. Small sample size. Exactly. Not only small sample size, but you just mentioned 87 years old. Right. As I get closer to that. The demographics. Demographics. Yeah. I mean, you talked about young people. I mean, we should be building and planning for communities, not for ourselves, because we've already done that. You know, we should be planning communities for our children. What is that going to look like? To do that, we need to make sure that our millennials and our Gen Xers and all of those people somehow are part of that discussion. And that does require a different means of outreach than we've done in the past. Same thing is true for the Latino communities. 
most of them are working, both working. They have child, children that they're caring for, getting um, – some of them do not speak English. I mean, it really requires planning to, to, to make sure that you're reaching out to the community that you represent to get those voices and get those ideas uh, into the overall discussion of what policy or program should be. It requires a lot of hard work. And it isn't something that we train our staff to do. Somebody that's an engineer that's running a public works department isn't somebody that was trained to do public outreach. So it requires... That's a very good point. It requires people to come in and do that. There are communities that that have civic engagement divisions or people within the cities, and that's becoming more and more prevalent. Drew Powers, the city manager in TO, started out at civic engagement in the city of Ventura. He went to Thousand Oaks as their public outreach sort of person in the city manager's office and is now city manager. So he gets it. There are other cities that have people that are oriented towards that, but it's something that I think every city needs to bring into the mix and or realize that they need to go out and hire to do these things. We're talking with Sandy Smith. He teaches in the master's program at Cal Lutheran University. He's also a former mayor in the city of Ventura in California, and he also is a land use consultant with CESPI Consulting. Sandy, I want to talk to you about the idea of a city outsourcing versus taking jobs in-house. We look at things like public works. We look at other areas like uh, police or fire. Some cities do it in-house. Some cities do a lot of contracting work and outsource it. Talk to our listeners about the difference of the two. What are the pros and cons of both? When is it more kind of useful? It was something that actually uh, we looked at it when I was on council about uh, contracting with the county for fire services and police services. Cities like Thousand Oaks, for instance, contract with the sheriff's office for police services. There are some benefits to that. Some of those can be uh, financial. Uh, some of those can be in terms of the overall resources that the sheriff's office has, helicopters, crime investigation, other things that can be brought into the mix of benefit. Same thing might be true for fire. Santa Paula recently decided to contract with the county for fire services. Those need to be weighed heavily against the benefits that happen, you know, because when we looked at it, for instance, the city of Ventura, the, the pushback from the community is we want to have our own police department, our fire department, et cetera. So, you know, the benefits have to always be weighed against that. It isn't always the most cost effective. We have to look at it in terms of the overall benefit. Every city has a different way of looking at it. And like I said, there are, throughout the county of Ventura, there are cities that contract out or don't. In terms of public works, same thing, city attorneys. Some, some cities contract out for city attorney services rather than have a full time attorney on staff. Just depends on the size of the city. Same things go with planning services. So it really has to do with the size of the city. Very few of our cities have staff adequate to do, let's say, a general plan amendment, which is supposedly done every 10 years. And it's sort of the master plan for the community. They'll bring in a consultant on that. It's commonplace. It just, it has to do mostly with the size, the economics, and the skill set that you're capable of having on staff. So how do you, I mean, and, and I get that, that makes sense. Um, but how do you, how, what is the optimal size for a government to be, local government? How do you figure that out? And, and here in the Ventura County, in Ventura County, I think we have 13 cities, like six of them contract for fire uh, and sheriffs and the other ones don't. And, and I'm not saying one is more right or wrong, not at all. But how do you figure that out? What, what, how do you, you kind of, and you're, so you're saying economics is part of the equation. I know in some ways, for example, uh, some cities, though, they'll, they'll do a lot of it in-house. 
and sometimes to almost in the detriment where it's like we have a backlog of public work projects that aren't being done. We can outsource, but we just haven't and we don't. And it feels like we won't. But how do you make that decision? I mean, is that cultural as well? or Well, some of it is giving up the, the, the reins and control. And even though if you bring in contract people, you still need to manage them. So you could hire, you know, 10 contract uh, planners, for instance, in a planning department, but you still have to have the resources to manage them. And just like sort of, you know, having a website where you post things on a website, and if you don't update it and look at it every day and somebody's not managing that website, what good is it, right? Same thing's true at any level um, of bringing in contract people. So, I mean, there's that. But I think that I'm a firm supporter believer in bringing in contract people to make sure that things are done in a timely fashion. I guess maybe I would say that uh, in my in my experience at least, uh, sometimes that works well, sometimes it doesn't, and I think it overall it overall speaks to how effective the management of that department is. Uh, in departments are run poorly, you're going to find that they don't run contract people well either. Um, so in areas where they are where it's run effectively and it's managed well, they're going to be able to manage their contract people well too. So I'm not trying to avoid the the question. Uh, I, I think that co- bringing contract people in is is an appropriate way of dealing with these backlogs uh, that we find in, in most communities when it comes to like business permits or. Uh, conditional use permits to allow a brewery to open or design elements, etc. Some of that also has to do with how clear the coding is in a city. A lot of the issues that we have are that are that clarity doesn't often appear in our land use documents, either our general plan, our zoning codes, um, you know, or what it is that we're actually looking at doing. And if that is all over the place, you could have as many contract planners as you want working on something. And without that clarity, they're, they're going to be stuck like everybody else trying to figure out what reality is. I like what you mentioned about, uh, you know, just sometimes you outsource, sometimes you do it in-house and uh, like a website. Like I have my own business and we have a website. And for the website, I, look at, I took a crack at doing it myself. And I, this is way I could do it. Yeah, I could. But it, it, for the time it was going to cost me. It wasn't going to cost me money. It was going to cost me time. And then even at the end, the out, end result was not going to be as good as if I just paid someone some money to do it in a professional manner. And I think a lot of people can recognize that in a very quick and easy way, like a website for a company. Hey, they did it in-house. That's not very good. We all have a keen eye to it now because we're familiar with website searching and things like that. And sure. I think in local government, it's not as keen to know when things are being done in-house or not. You know, so, so it's an interesting thing. But hey, we're running short on time with this, and I want to give you the last word. What does good look like in your opinion? I mean, any last thoughts? If there were criteria for a report card on what good local government looks like, what will be on there? <laughs> Well, you know, if, if there wasn't a, a quick answer to that, I, I'd have that report card. I'd be using it in my class as an instructor, and I'd be running around as an advocate to every city saying, here, you need to adopt this measure on making sure that government's happening well, you know. I think it depends. It, it differs from city to city. Um, you know, some places are, are, are going to be struggling just because of the, the fact that they don't have the economic base to really drive government the, probably the way they should. But to me, the, 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 repo- the report card is, is your council really doing, we talked about civic engagement, really adequately representing the voice of the people? At some point, it comes down to be, being held accountable to what's happening at the local level in terms of are your streets getting paved? 
You know, are, are the services that you expect being provided? And if not, why not? You know, I mean, I think that as a, as a council member, as I mentioned, you hire the city attorney and you hire the city manager. The role of the, of the council is to be the voice of the people. So you adequately represent that voice and that vision and then impart that vision to the city manager and then give them the leeway to go do that. I think that one of the things that doesn't happen often is city councils don't hold city managers accountable. I, I, first of all, they're not clear about what it is that they want. So the next day after a council meeting, everybody's sitting around going, what the hell was that? What are we going to do? <laughs> you know, council member Smith came up with this weird idea. I'm not sure we can do that. Everybody's sort of hovering around figuring out what in the hell, how are we going to do that, right? So in, you're never, never, number one is do, does council involve in the staff in conceptualizing ideas before they reach an attempt to have them become law and or an ordinance? How effectively are they gauging that new policy through up from the bottom through the operational abilities of the city? I think that's really a key. So everything comes bottom up from the bottom up. Um, so how often is the council involved in that in terms of before they come up with some harebrained idea for a new implementation? But if that process is followed, uh, then it's providing that guidance to the city manager. Here's what we expect. And then a few months from then, how are we doing on that? How are we doing on implementing that? And holding the city manager accountable to ensure that those things that have come up percolated from the people through operations uh, that are providing public value and those things that managers are held accountable for doing those things. Our guest today is Sandy Smith. You can get more information about Sandy or connect with him. Go online to the website, cespi.com. Sandy, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, thanks. Now it's time for the Nonprofit Spotlight with your host, Michael Anderson. Nonprofit Spotlight. Each week we highlight a local nonprofit doing good work in our community. Today's Nonprofit Spotlight is brought to you by Era Energy, powered by safety, innovation, and community. We help keep California moving forward. Our nonprofit spotlight today is going to be handled by Sandy Smith, our feature interview guest. Sandy, what do you got for us today? Well, I've been involved with the Ventura County Civic Alliance for quite a few years, and uh, the Civic Alliance is probably best known by the biannual State of the Region report that it produces. But it's an organization that focuses on the three E's, the economy, the environment, and social equity. Uh, And we're a neutral convener for issues of import in the region. And uh, it's a great uh, organization doing good things and involved in, uh, in in making sure that that neutral convening role sort of focuses on important issues and that state of the region report will be coming out this year. The Ventura County Civic Alliance, you can get more information about them online. Go to civicalliance.org. Sandy, thank you very much. You bet. Well, that does it for our show today. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Boyd & Associates, the largest family-owned security company in Southern California. Established in 1967, for your home and business security needs, visit voidsecurity.com or call 805-650-3267. Visit voidsecurity.com. Have a wonderful week, and we'll join you again next time on The Big Idea. Take care. (laughs) 
Do you ever question if your investments are right for you? Do you own any annuities, retirement accounts, or have other money you want help with? Have you ever wondered what your advisor is making or how they get paid? Get a free second opinion. Talk with Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. Call his answering service today, 805-665-3767. Leave a message and get a call back immediately. 805-665-3767.